0: Welcome to Is This Working? A podcast about the messy parts of work with me, Anna Cogerado And
1: me, Tiffany Philippu. And we're back for season four. We are
0: back. Welcome to the new season of the show. And we've got a cracker of a first episode for you an interview with Pandora Sykes about her new book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right?
1: Pandora is a journalist and speaker. She's written for publications including the Sunday times Star magazine, Elle, The Telegraph, Observer, GQ and Red magazine. She's also the co-host of The Hilo, the cult weekly pop culture podcast. How Do We Know We're Doing It Right is Pandora's first book and if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love it. It's a collection of witty and thoughtful essays about modern life, which all explore our ever-elusive quest to find happiness in ourselves. What I love about the book is that Pandora doesn't actually
0: give you answers. Instead, she helps you ask better questions by asking them herself. It's really refreshing to read something that acknowledges just how messy modern life is. And in the chat that you'll hear on today's episode with Pandora, we zoom in on the parts of the book which are all about work and our relentless pursuit to find happiness in it. Enjoy the show. Hi, Pandora. Thank you so much for being on the show.
2: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Hello, Pandora. Yeah, how are you doing?
2: I'm good, thank you. How are you, Tiffany?
1: Good. Um, I'm just going to dive straight in by asking, in your book, you've written an essay about work and happiness. And I just wanted to ask, how did you get interested in the question around our relationships with our work and ourselves?
2: I was really interested, firstly, in happiness and I couldn't believe how many books have been written on it and particularly on sort of happiness economics and I wanted to write about happiness but I didn't want to just write about it in the same way that I'd read about it a lot which is as this quite like isolated thing and I was also very interested um like you guys are obviously in work culture and how our identities um have Changed when it comes to work and how work has sort of taken over our whole lives, I suppose, and how a lot of us are using work or the idea of work or even happiness itself as an excuse to work. So I just thought the relationship between the two of them um, might be quite useful to explore because um, work and leisure are obviously no longer really separate. Everything has kind of leaked into one um, and... So it just, I don't know, I just thought it would be an interesting angle to look at.
0: Um, To ask kind of the big question, in writing the essay, have you come any closer to what the secret to happiness at work is?
2: Well, I think it's a lot of the things that you guys talk about each week is it's, it's looking at why we're doing the work we're doing. And I think disentangling ourselves from the work, which is something that I find quite difficult because my work and and me are not that separate as identities, but I think it's kind of re-establishing. I, I feel like happiness through work and with work is if you kind of establish yourself separately to work. So rather than it being your um, entire identity, which is, um, I mean, that's that's what Ezra Klein said you know a job has boundaries and identity has none so it's the difference between saying you know I work as a journalist and broadcaster to I am a journalist and broadcaster and that sounds like such a small slightly trivial petty point to make but I think it's really important if we're going to start to kind of slightly sort through why we do the work we do and what we consider work and also start thinking about the things that we don't consider work that unpaid work the care work the work of the home so that we can really kind of fully understand the ways in which different people work and the impact it has on them.
0: So much to unpack here Um, but something you know you've just touched on that in you know talking about how everything has become very blurry Um, and something that really spoke to me is the part of your essay in where you talk about the trifecta of blurring friendship work and home in relation to your own podcast the high low and how recording that podcast in your house with your friend is one of the most rewarding parts of what you do Um, and you know obviously pandemic notwithstanding I would say that's very true for us as well and one of the things that I really am looking forward to kind of Going back to is actually having Tiffany in my house and recording this in person <laughs> rather than virtually. Um, but, um, however, all of that being said, when we tell people that recording a podcast with a friend is part of our jobs, they either don't get it, assume we don't make any mon- money from it, or belittle it in some way, kind of dismiss it in some way. Um, what has been your experience of how people react to this kind of work where you're actually working with your friend and working in your home?
2: I mean, I think that's an age-old problem with women and creative pursuit, isn't it? Is that anything creative done by women is seen as a hobby. Um, A sort of like little dilettante thing that she does whilst, you know, hoovering or dusting or whatever. Uh, Yes, that's something we had. I was going to say we haven't had it recently, but actually we have because I, I was having people asking how my maternity leave had gone a good two months after the high low was back. And the idea that I would somehow be making the high low whilst also being on maternity leave um, really boggled me because you, if anyone else went back to working two days a week, that would be working two days a week. So yes, I think I'm more, to be honest, I think I'm more mesmerized that people think that anyone has the, time or the or the safety or security to be working intensively hard on something um, and employing lots of different people f- for free, for a hobby. Like <laughs> if I want to do something for free, I'll go play with my children or I'll lie on the sofa and read a book. I, I, I'm not going to spend Ten hours putting together a podcast, which has a fact checker and a producer and two agents um, who help us to monetize it. Do, do you know what I mean? It's it's very, mm. it is very strange to me. Um, it maybe maybe it's a compliment because it means that your work comes across as conversational. Um, but I think I have always found it surprising that that people think a podcast is you just get together and you just witter and you just put it out there it is the work that gives me the most anxiety that we have to be the most careful with that we have to think about almost every single day from what we're presenting on the platform how we push that content out who we work with to monetize it because you know you've got to be so careful with sponsors now we don't always get it right but you have to make sure you align with their messaging um it's a really intense project and and Dolly would not mind me saying that and it's honestly I think the only reason we can do it is because we are such good friends.
0: Yeah I mean that's something that I just I really really relate to I'm just you know the limits of a podcast you can't see that I'm nodding along here (laughs) I think you know we talk about how on this we sort of th- think of this as a friendship first business where we put our friendship before everything else and also that is right what enables me. us to kind of make the right decisions and keep going um so yeah no it's hard hard relate on all of that um I want to talk a bit about to-do lists and being organized because you shared in your essay um, in your book that at university, you were given the nickname clipboard pandy and you didn't much like it. Um, that passage really took me straight back to being at school where being smart was supposed to be seen as something that was effortless. And the organized girls were the nerds, girls like me. Um, and the girls who didn't even try on the essays and who kind of, you know, did their homework just before the school bell rang were seen as the super cool, smart ones. Do you think that there is an expectation, especially for women, that success should be something that is effortless?
2: It's so funny because I have only done a few interviews so far, but everyone has brought up clipboard pandy. And I honestly did not realise that the the one thing that would be taken from my book is my charming moniker from university. Um, I, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really interesting that it's, it's now cool to be diligent, but it definitely hasn't always um been cool and it was definitely something I was quite ashamed about um and I was at like a really high pressure school where I for the term that I did my GCSEs I got up at 4am every single morning so every time I think I'm working really hard now I just have to remember that term and I literally want to throw up spontaneously so um definitely that's been something that's always dogged me the idea of effortlessness is I feel really torn on it because I don't feel like women should have to share everything about their process in order for you to see the hard work as valid or valuable or like they worked hard on it. Um, And I feel like that are kind of across my life generally. So, for example, with parenthood, I will share the odd picture of me with my children, but I, I, I wouldn't go into detail about the hard bits of raising them or of being a parent because that feels private to me. What I then find concerning is that people assume, because you haven't externalised it, that that's something that's very easy, that it's effortless. And I feel really torn between wanting to kind of myth bust that anything is effortless, that a podcast just makes itself, that a book just writes itself, that, you know, mothering just happens, kind of just breezes past and you just hop on for the ride. I'm torn between feeling like, you know, yeah, myth busting that to show... That that's really not the case, but also feeling like we should be able to cognitively expand what we can't see. And I, and I do think that the Internet and social media has taken away our ability to do that. So that this idea of effort and effortless is much more loaded than it was than when me and you were just, you know, really nerdy at school, Anna.
1: <laughs> I, I do yeah. question how nerdy you were, Anna. Like- yeah maybe well you know what I I, were you I at school
2: with her. Yeah.
1: Yes. <laughs> I mean we we didn't we didn't become friends I think till we were about 17 or 18. Um, But that wasn't because Anna was a nerd and I was cool.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? I always had an inner nerd in me and I really felt like I couldn't express it. I really felt like what I would do is the worst of both worlds is I would work really hard on my homework the night before and then would kind of pretend that I was just doing it in the morning because everyone else who seemed to be cool were the people who just dashed their homework off. Five minutes before the bell rang, but oh my anyway. god, you had
2: this whole sort of subterfuge. No, I've um, I never tried to hide. Um, God, coolness is a weird thing, isn't it? We could do a whole separate podcast on that. God, it's yes. so liberating to really not care if you're cool.
0: Gosh, yes, no, and you know what? It's it, uh, it. was only when I got to you. Actually, it's funny that the um clipboard pandy thing came about at university because it's only when I got to not even yeah, it was at university when I started to really embrace my love of spreadsheets and to be a bit more vocal and open about that. So there is something I think to be said in sort of growing up and just growing into your natural, your natural disposition for organization and
1: tips and all that kind of stuff. Definitely. I've seen and heard you talk about how people often ask you Pandora, how do you get so much done? How do you do so much? I'm not going to ask you that question. I'm going to ask you, how do you feel about people asking you that question?
2: I don't want people asking me that question. I do worry that we fetishize the processes of others without, like, we just take the good bits. So we just see, oh God, someone's got all of this stuff done. Um, how, do they, how do they do it? Without maybe considering that they might have not let other stuff, they might have had to let other stuff slide or they might have got other stuff done. So what I get asked a lot is that I read a lot and I feel awful when that makes people feel bad about themselves because we have some weird sort of moral thing about reading where if you read a lot, you're like a really good sort of heroic, educated person. If you don't read, you're slovenly and, you know, thuggish and not interested in the world. It's really weird the way those things um, prevail. And I don't believe in them at all. Um but the reason why I read so much is because I just don't know any other way to be. If I haven't been able to read for a week, I feel sort of like a ghost of myself. I feel really weak mentally and physically and I feel miserable. But in order to do all that reading or in this case, when I was writing the book, I wrote it, did not realise before I started writing it, but I wrote it in a really short time frame. And so, of course, things slid, namely um, my social life and my health. Like I have hardly done anything with friends in the last year. And certainly I have not been exercising and cooking myself the healthy meals I should. I don't recommend that to anyone. Like I'm really looking forward to trying to get some more balance in my life. I have a tendency to work myself into the ground. um, But what I've become aware of now, I have two small children is that that doesn't just impact me. That also impacts my family. So it's natural, I think, to wonder how other people do stuff. Like I do it about people all the time. I think, God, I can't believe that some people have written 10 books. Have they written 10 books and also, you know, doing X, Y, Z? But it doesn't really help us looking at what other people are doing. You know, that, that interview series on the cut, which I find fascinating, but I stopped reading after I read one of the columns, the How I Got It Done column, with Audrey Gelman, the co founder of the now, I think, slightly disgraced Wing. I can't really keep up, but let's just say slightly disgraced Wing. And she had 60 different categories in her email inbox 60, 60 different color coded categories. And honestly, I think about that probably almost every day. I think that's when it's, that's when process has led to madness.
0: Well, that's at the point where, and, and you, you write this, um, in your book where in trying to make the work easier, that process is so complicated. It has become work in and of itself. And it almost feels like sort of in trying to lessen our load and sort of streamline, streamline our work, we have actually just made even more work for ourselves in doing that and then there is a right way to work and that there is a wrong way to work and that if you're not using the sort of most the fanciest tech and the sort of cleverest hacks then you're not you're not going about your process in the right way
2: totally and I and I really hate how prescriptive in some ways we become quite liberated in work i mean as you guys talk about a lot of the time the way in which we can work from home or, you know, we're all recording a podcast from our homes. The pandemic particularly has has really made us question all those traditional work practices. But in some ways we're still really prescriptive. Like I really struggle with the idea that if you work in the media, you should be very present on the internet. Um, You should reply to emails every day and you should check your social media every day. I don't really like being present on the internet. So I have this quite uneasy relationship where I'm either very much there or very much not there. And I really struggle with this idea that there's only one way to be engaged. And I think we could look at that across work practices as a whole, to be honest.
0: Something um, that you touched on earlier is work being a central part of your identity and um, you kind of talked about you know how we describe ourselves as writers journalists as opposed to working in the media and that's something that I think a lot about because um, I, I actively call myself a I say I am a journalist whenever I'm introducing myself I might sort of describe what I do in a different way but the thing that I always do say is that I am a journalist even though I very much Rail against the stereotype of a journalist, and I would say that in many ways I, I sort of I don't want to be seen as the kind of stereotypical journalist, and yet I'm, i' and yet I can't get over, you know I, I still come back to calling myself one and I, and I do want to sort of identify as a journalist. Um, how do you feel about your your work and in relation to your identity and sort of how what you call yourself and sort of how sort of how you think of yourself in relation to your job title?
2: I mean, like you, I also call myself a journalist. So even though I think we should be able to separate identity and work, it only works with some job title. So some, it only works with some job titles. So you can say I work at a bank, but you can't. I think you'd sound a little bit strange if you said I work as a journalist. Like it's a bit, it's a bit mm-hmm. of a, it's it's a bit of an old mouthful that one. So I do say I am a journalist, um, and I am very much still navigating those boundaries between work and self I didn't used to worry about the boundaries they now are something that do cause me quite a lot of anxiety so I am constantly trying to renegotiate them and think about what's private and what's public um, it really changed for me when I had children um, I think as a lot of women experience uh, it sort of threw all my identities up in the air and all my ideas about who I am and the way I work so I'm still figuring that out to be honest but I don't I don't mind calling myself a journalist in terms of the media has kind of been part of some pretty awful stuff not even really recently historically it's just that we're talking about it all recently but I that doesn't make me afraid to call myself a journalist because um, there are there are always bad eggs or bad publications and I think it's important that people that Want to do things differently? Still identify within that profession to show that we're not all the same, as you say.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, very helpful because that kind of helps helps me feel better about it. It's that I guess it's that idea of be, be the change you want to see. Do either of you see yourselves as entrepreneurs? No, I don't like the word entrepreneur. I, I really struggle.
2: Really, I don't know. I just don't feel like one. Yeah, maybe it's the word, isn't it? Yeah, yeah
0: it's it, i think of entrepreneur and i see i see a man in um uh, sort of like a t-shirt and jeans just honestly just talking a lot of nonsense about uh, disrupting this that and the other um and it just but at the same what, like, time like
1: changing work
0: <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> um, but i don't know I, however um i i Cause I'm, I'm, I do think a lot about sort of job titles and what to call yourself. And I think they're I, important.
2: I, I don't agree that job titles aren't important.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Um, and especially in terms of identity, I think I, I almost, I almost feel more comfortable with, the um, with small business owner, even though that's not exactly what I am either. Um, so it's tricky, but entrepreneur, I, I just, I don't, I, I don't know why I have quite a visceral reaction and don't, and have, and don't call myself one.
2: I mean, I'm not even sure if technically I am a journalist because I do, I do more talky stuff than I do writey stuff. But it just feels easier just for me to say journalist.
0: <laughs> well, that's the thing is that you know it's it, in so many ways. Um, I there's lots of aspects of what I do that I don't think are sort of this is what I meant by it. You know, I don't think that when you think of the idea of a journalist, you don't think of what I some of the things that I do, and yet I see very journalistic. I see, gen- I see that I take either a journalistic approach or there is journalistic value um, in the same way that I very much see the high low as a piece of journalism. So, you know, it's, it, it's not just this idea of, you know, a old white dude sort of writing mm. at, at his typewriter kind of thing. Um, not that that's what any journalist does anymore, but still, um, I think it's also, it's an expanding and changing role And yet there is also an identity that's associated with it. And I think maybe those are two separate things.
2: Yeah, I think that's really interesting what you just said about calling things pieces of journalism. I feel a lot more comfortable with that than content. The word content's now really overused and it's really flattening. So someone dashing off something on Instagram is content, but then so is something that takes 100 hours to produce over a month. It doesn't seem...
0: And, and I think also the other, you know, because there is, I think there can be so much value in pieces of content that exist on Instagram. and yet Oh, me too. Yeah. But then at the same time, there's also so much. I mean, there's guff everywhere. Of course, there's, you know, there's guff in newspapers. Um, but it just becomes, and like you say, the word content has just flattened everything because it then becomes a lot harder to distinguish between where there is real great value and you know especially in the last uh, sort of I would say during this pandemic in various different ways Instagram has been such a brilliant learning resource for me Um, and yet also at the same time it's somewhere that is just is full of nonsense as well so
2: I totally agree I I normally check my Instagram about once a week but in the last not actually this week, but in the two or three weeks previous, I was checking every single day because it was such a moment for learning. It felt like there'd been this real uh, sea change away from Instagram just being, you know, visual into a place where people could actually write at length. You know, we've really seen like the caption becoming kind of mini bites of journalism. And I think we need a new word for that because someone like, Leila Alsad what she writes on Instagram shouldn't really be called content in the same way that like a roundup of five great heels is and I'm not dissing that like I think that Instagram should be a place for escapist content as well and you should be able to read pieces about shoes but it feels weird that we call these the same names I mean that's why I used to have a problem with the word influencer when I got called an influencer I I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of but it felt frustrating because I was spending my whole day at a desk and then occasionally posting something on social media it it didn't feel accurate and I think we do struggle when we talk about social media we don't have a huge amount of accuracy or or the right language
0: Mm, yeah I think that's very very true um and it's that kind of thing where especially kind of going back to when you, how you were talking about the the unseen work of the podcast. I think there are um, lots of, you know, for want of better word, influencers, content creators, whatever you want to call people who sort of make their money predominantly through social media and making content. So much of that, there's so much work behind the scenes of the picture. You see the picture and the caption, but so much unseen work has gone in, into doing that. And it's a very, I think, sort of, um, I guess, poorly understood job. And there is a lot of um, shame, you know, shaming that goes on from people who don't understand, understand that essentially, and sort of, oh, it, it must just be so easy just to stick up a, in the same way that it's, oh, it must be so easy just to whack a podcast on the internet as it must be so easy just to take pictures um, in a, you know, nice dress and shoes when actually quite a lot goes on behind the scenes
2: also having your pitch taken in a nice dress and shoes it makes me shudder thinking about it because i did it for almost three years at the sunday times and it is so time consuming you know the court call, the calling in of all those clothes and then trying to make those clothes look nice and then the editing of the pictures and then the you're right there's so much unseen work it's not rocket science i don't think anyone would suggest otherwise but it does not take five minutes
0: Hey, is this working listeners? We've got some exciting news for you. We are now on Patreon, which is a platform for supporting creators. And you can find us at patreon.com slash is this working
1: show. If you support us on Patreon, we've made some really fun benefits for you that will improve your working life, including early access to the episodes before everyone else. And when you support us on Patreon, you'll be joining our growing community of friendly work buddies. I like to think of our Patreon community kind of like the world's best staff room, a
0: place to hang out and shoot the shit about work. So come and find us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash is this working show. See you there.
1: You've quoted um, someone that we're huge fans of on this podcast, Anne Helen Peterson, in some of your work, including in your book. Um, Anne Helen Peterson's a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed who wrote the viral article on burnout. And when Anne Helen Peterson came on this podcast recently, we talked to her about this concept of hard work and explored what hard work actually means. And I've heard you talk about working hard to get to where you are now. Um, I'm
2: curious as to
1: what hard work does mean to you.
2: I love that episode you did with her. I thought she was so interesting on, um, about how she moved to Montana, was it? Yeah. In order to kind of get a better work life balance. But she just found that her and her partner just worked more because they had no commute. I think that's a, re- it's a particularly interesting question in relation to the last year or two, where it's just definitely become quite untenable for me. So I think hard work can be dangerous, dangerous when it's to the um, absence of other things. But I think when hard work is good, when it feels really satisfying, is you know what legions of experts have said before me, whether it's cheek sent me high E or um Cal Newport or all those other people read you know writing about work and focus is like hard work when it makes me feel good is being at a desk in working hours so what's that nine to six with a decent work break not popping onto email all the time um and feeling like I'm really using my brain but in a pleasurable way hard work in a bad way I think is feeling confused torn in lots of different directions um not totally sure where you're going, seeking kind of outside approval or checking social media lot, so that it kind of other opinions and thoughts infiltrate in and being distracted and feeling unhealthy and unfocused. I think it's probably really important to distinguish between those two types of hard work.
1: Yeah, it's almost like enjoyment versus punishment.
2: Yes, yes. And that's a really is a really difficult line to to find because something i have found is that you can actually punish yourself with work that you enjoy. Interesting. If you if you don't give if you don't give things the time to breathe or you the time to breathe, then everything becomes onerous.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because you have to you really do there there's some especially when you do the kind of work which is essentially 90% of it involves thinking you can't force the thoughts to come you can't <laughs> schedule as much as much as I have tried to put in my calendar you know the summoning this is, of the thoughts this <laughs> <Exactly>. thinking time <laughs> <It> doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work.
2: I wouldn't put it past you Anna to have that on a little spreadsheet thinking time um, yeah. I, I, yes I'm I craving more thinking time I have no thinking time <laughs>
0: Um, so my favorite parts of your essay are the bits where you talk about your own messy relationship with work. And this really came through for me in the bit where, um, you talked about success and finding it difficult to get excited by it. Um, and you wrote about having this feeling niggling at you, um, where you're sort of asking yourself what next. And that really resonated with me because it's articulated something that I've been sort of thinking about and not being able to kind of put my finger on lately, which is how I've realized that I kind of essentially belittle my own successes as not real for want of a better or not right or not the right kind of success, I suppose. So, um, I, you know, I think about how I got a, um, front page, front page byline in the New York times and, I put, put it, I made all of these excuses about, and you know, I, I had so many people were like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And it, yes, it is amazing. But for me, I put it down to, oh no, it's, you know, I, I dismissed it for all of these reasons that, oh, I only got that because of X, Y, Z. And it's not, it's not a real byline. It's not a real front page byline. Um, why? And, and I think it, I think that is kind of the same half, the other half of the same coin where you, uh, you can't, you struggle to sit in, essentially, almost in the discomfort of the success, and you sort of struggle to actually accept and appreciate and celebrate the success. Um, why do you think we do this to ourselves?
2: I think it's a mix of two things. I think a rival fantasy, which was what you were talking about, of this idea that you sort of achieve something, then you achieve it, and it doesn't bring you all the glory and relaxed happiness. You just sort of itch to think well what should i be doing next or maybe it's not as great as i thought it was and i think that is something that is just absolutely endemic to humans like i mean you can find literature on that going back and back and back and back um so we'll never escape that i don't think i think it is exacerbated by constantly comparing our successes to other people but on the kind of playing down of them I think diminishing um, and self-deprecating are very closely linked. I think that women are very used to being self-deprecating. I think it's something particularly British. And when you self-deprecate constantly, you just end up diminishing yourself and also diminishing how you feel about that work. And it reminds me of that line from um, Nanette by Hannah Gadsby. Obviously, uh, it wasn't about work at all it was about um sexuality and uh and assault but she says in 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 that show why she's no longer going to take the piss out of herself and she says it's not humility it is humiliation and I think that line is really interesting because often in trying to be humble or self-deprecating, I wonder if we do ourselves out of any of the pleasure of achieving that.
1: Yeah, I too relate to that. I don't I I I almost just feel nothing when something good successful happens and I just think I move on to the next thing almost immediately. Um I think I'm terrible at celebrating successes. Actually Anna, you've worked with me, you'll probably agree. Um, <laughs> well, I, I feel that we, we,
0: we, we both make such a point to try and celebrate each other's success. And I think it's because, but we, yet yeah, we're really bad at doing it for ourselves. Mm. So if I, if I kind of, if I, if I achieve something, the first person to kind of make a really big deal about it is Tiffany. And I would say probably maybe vice versa. Whereas I know that when she's making a big deal out of it about my success, I'm kind of thinking like, in my mind, there's this sort of running commentary of like, no, I, you know, this is really not a big deal or, you know, to your point, you know, I'm self-deprecating.
2: Well, girls are taught not to boast as well. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I think, you know, I've, I've never really gone to anyone with news bar maybe a few select friends and then even felt a bit sick telling them. Um, and I, I definitely find like the sales aspect of my work really difficult. Like, I feel, even though I'm so excited to talk about some of the things in the book, because they were things I discovered that genuinely interested me, at the same time, I find the whole thing completely mortifying and sickening, and I sort of want to bury it, um, which is obviously really stupid when you've worked really hard on something. But I am really having to fight against the instinct just to keep quiet and hope it goes away, which is obviously ridiculous because we need to sell some copies. <laughs>
0: I've heard so many female authors talk about their books like that and it's just I
1: guess I mean yeah it's very different skills mm -hmm. writing a book and selling a book yeah yeah and also because I um I I come not from a writer background so I used to have to do sales in the early days of my job so we joke in our we don't joke it's actually true in our podcast I'm the head of sales and I just I love it I get a real high from it Um, and I think it's also just partly a personality thing as well but it's not a naturally female way of being I think to want to and enjoy selling but it's so important for all our work
2: I think it's because my work is like very it's a lot of not always the book actually very deliberately isn't but there's a lot of like my opinion in there so when I'm selling it it's a bit like selling me which is just kind of embarrassing Mm. like offering myself up being like oh I think I'm all right do you think I'm good enough like it's just oh it's icky whereas I think if I was a carpenter I would be able to sell that better because I wouldn't be selling myself Mm. but we'll never know because I can't do joinery
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, what would you say success means to you today, and has that changed over time?
2: I'm trying to look at success as more broadly, rather than just professional, um, and also look kind of celebrate the micro as much as the macro. So, a you know a really good week where I feel really good and my family are really happy and the weather's been beautiful you know for that to feel like a success just as much as finishing a big piece of work because I think if you start celebrating success in your personal life as much as your professional um however that looks like to you then it takes some of the pressure off and I also think that we kind of need to maybe go backwards a bit in terms of work I know this might seem quite counterproductive or antithetical but to you know for those of us who are lucky that work is also a career so something that we can um, shape rather than it just being the means to an end which is to pay bills Um, sometimes that can kind of loom outsize so I think maybe just to slightly reduce it cognitively at least to think of it just sometimes as a job and again this comes from a real place of luxury to be able to do that I do understand that but to be able to think of it as a job um, so to almost limit the control it has like to contain it with the control it has over your life so that it no longer becomes the only capacity or route to feeling success and self-worth as well yeah because they are they're, they're they're definitely tied up and and they shouldn't be and i most admire people who are able to view those things separately
0: yeah, I'd like to, um, I'd definitely like to hang out with more of those people because I think it, that, that really does feel kind of like the, the moving target that we're all sort of trying to get to. Um, something that you wrote very candidly about, I found, um, was your relationship with domestic work. And um, I'm, going to, I'm going to read to you your own words now. Um, of keeping the home, you write, I want to be doing that work as much as I want to be doing profitable work. This work is not always necessary economically, but it feels necessary to me. Um, Could you tell us a bit more about how you feel about um, a keeping the, you know, the work in the home, but then also about that cognitive load that women take on in doing this unpaid work?
2: Something that I find really interesting when we talk about the work of the home is that it is are often considered kind of um boring but necessary and a bit shameful and sort of only really the stuff that stay-at-home mothers would choose to do but the truth is that all working parents know that the work inside the home is hours every day probably you know two or three on top of your work at work and yet it's really odd to me that we only talk about them in really binary terms we either talk about parents that work or we talk about parents that stay at home with nothing fluid in between and the truth is that the parent that stays at home is still a working parent she's just working in the home and the parent that goes to work is still doing work in the home and there was just such little research in this like I was really staggered how there was it was completely non-existent when it came to the work in same-sex couples and when i talk about the work of the home i kind of uh talk about it from several different angles because it's all become flattened in something called emotional labor which is a misunderstanding of the original term and also a misunderstanding i think of the work at home so the work in the home is physical work, so literally bathing your children, cooking them tea, whatever. Um, and obviously, if you don't have children, there is still the work of the home, but I did write about it through the lens of having children. So there's the physical work, there's the allostatic load, which is the wear and tear of that work and that stress on your body. And then there's the cognitive work, which is also described as the executive functioning of the household. So it's not just the getting the children dressed, it's thinking oh, they need a new pair of shoes or do they have a swimming costume for swimming lessons or God, I can't find their hairbrush anywhere. I'm going to need to buy a new one. It's thinking about all of those things. And what I did find is that whilst there is much less of a gap between the physical work in the home, there is still something like a 70 minute difference between a working mother and a working father. Um, But that's nothing on what it used to be. So while there's about a 70 minute physical gap, um, that has really closed. But the cognitive gap has not closed nearly as much and is not being spoken about as much. And that is the thing that personally speaking causes me the most stress and which is why I wanted to explore that more um, and look into something that I just thought had been quite neglected in contemporary dialogue. I found it very, you sort of, you,
0: you lay out in that section, um, sort of the split between what you and your husband do in, in, in the home and looking at it, um, it, it felt, I really related to it in the, in terms of kind of how my household is structured. And yes, I don't have kids, but nonetheless, of course, as you say, you still have, there's still things you have to do. And looking at it made me realize that, oh no, we really are very equally split, but, I, ha- I do have this same issue where I'm taking on, as you say, this executive function and it's, and it's me that's kind of overseeing everything. And I'm the one who holds a lot of the information. Um, and that does cause me a lot of stress. And it was, it was I found it um, very relieving, I guess, to kind of see it all laid out on the page like that, that it's not just me who, ha- who has this issue.
2: And the thing is, is that that we are constantly... Told that, like we have been socialized in that. Women aren't just born better at multitasking and writing to do lists. And I see that every time my mother says to me, Oh, well, you know, women are just better at that stuff. Well, they're, they're better at that stuff for a reason. They're better because they've been told they're better at it. And there was a professor, Pat Levitt, who I think he's called Pat Levitt. Um, anyway, it's in the book if you want to check. <laughs> and he says something like, um, Women have been told that they're better at doing this stuff and they've bought into it. And it's true, we have, we've, we've bought into it. But also I cannot claim just to be a victim of it because I do choose to do it. I do like the way I, you know, I'm quite a creative person. So I really like arranging stuff at home or doing interior decoration at home. And I like the clothes that I buy my children. If I, se- if I said to my husband, can you go buy some trousers for the children? he would do it. I just you know have i'm controlling about it i'm i I like the trousers I buy, and I have genuinely no idea what trousers he would come back with so there is there is a choice there and and I do think the more we don't make that choice, the more you know i am I am culpable I am complicit in in that assumption. I do completely acknowledge that
1: well you're also aware self aware and acting through choice and enjoyment versus, say, resentment. So if there was someone who hated going to the shop to buy the trousers, that would be a very different story, I think. So,
2: And there are a lot of women. There are so many, you know, I am incredibly lucky that I have uh, a very equal marriage aside from that cognitive work, but it's something that we're both aware of and joke about. But there are so many women, you know, we've read about it through the pandemic. There are so many women who work full time and then do all of the care work in the home, which is physical, allostatic and cognitive. Um, that is still a massive, massive issue, I think, when it comes to gender and work.
1: Yeah, and it happens in workplaces as well, where the women are expected to bring in the cake for the birthday and yeah. <laughs> clean up the tea in the kitchen and all that other those other things that make me... Yeah,
2: that's so interesting, <laughs> the cake for the birthday. Yeah
1: um yeah I used to I don't bake anyway but I used to say I refused I used to work in very male environments I was like well I'm not going to bake because you know (laughs) as a protest um but but there was that expectation that a woman would sort out the birthday card and everything like that and Mm um yeah it's just a really difficult thing to move away from um to runs deep. (laughs) Runs deep. Also, I do like men doing stuff for me. But anyway, (laughs) um, (laughs) for another podcast. We haven't mentioned the pandemic yet. We ended up spontaneously doing a a whole season regarding how the pandemic was impacting our work and our relationship with our work. Um, What would be that one thing that you would say that you've learned about your work that you're going to take with you moving forward?
2: I think... With everything that's happened in the last few months with the pandemic and with the Black Lives Matter protests, what I've actually really felt is that uh, my work is irrelevant. I have felt quite embarrassed. um, And I'm sure lots of other people have. This is not a woe is me story, but I have felt quite embarrassed that I don't feel like the work I'm putting out there is necessarily the essential work or the work that we should be talking about right now or reading. So In terms of what I've learned, it would probably be to listen more, to listen in my work and to be more thoughtful. Um, I feel like I have learned so much from the work of others in the last few months. Um, And so even though that's not really answering your question, I suppose it would be to not... To not be always thinking about your own work, to be considering the impact of others and to be learning from that for your work. How many more times can I say the word work?
1: <laughs> With, you're, you're talking about instead of seeing work as something that's on you to do, it's actually something for you to listen. It's You're talking about a different way of working. And more.
2: Yes, yes. Yeah, maybe a more reactive, responsive, inclusive. I mean, those were all things I was really interested in before. I, I've always wanted the highlow to be as inclusive as possible. I'm sure sometimes we fell short, but none of these ambitions are new. But I I feel very, very differently in the last few months. I feel like truly humbled by some of the hard, exhausting work that other people have done. So, yeah, you've put it exactly right. It's it's maybe shaping my work around other people's work or just taking just taking a minute Mm. yeah I'm still I'm still working out I think we're I think I think we'll be thinking about how this has shaped us and our work practices and our life practices for I mean years to come hopefully it will make really long-lasting changes
0: definitely I hope I definitely hope that as well um and I think that is a really great note to end this on thank you so much for being on the show pandora this was a really really great chat and um a really you've written a really really brilliant book that i think does really add so much not just to the conversation about work but also the conversation about life as well so um, i'm very grateful that it exists
2: thank you so much for having me on and it's um been so lovely to chat to you both thank you so much bye bye
0: Don't forget to support us on Patreon, where you can find lots of great benefits, including early access to the show. We're at patreon.com slash is this working show.